Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the host of ESPN's College Game Day, Reese Davis. Enough talk! It's time for action! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by the host of College Game Day. Ladies and gentlemen, ESPN's own Reese Davis. Reese, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Tell me about Muscle Shoals. Grew up, <laughs> you grew up there. I want to hear about it. It's a Leonard Skinner song. It's uh, That's how most people are familiar with it is uh, Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. They've been known to pick a song or two in Sweet Home Alabama. And Muscle Shoals is known as the hit recording capital of the world because basically anybody who is anyone in music has a connection or has recorded in Muscle Shoals, whether it's the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin. Uh, if you saw the documentary that was produced uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, uh, entitled Muscle Shoals, the first words spoken on the documentary were not, you know, a Southern rock guy or not a country music guy, some might suppose, but Bono. So basically, uh, it, it has a rich heritage of music, and it's located on the Tennessee River, and it's you know it's great people. There are four towns that basically all border each other. When I uh, grew up there, there were probably you know sixty to seventy thousand people in the four towns combined. So you know, kind of a, a small town feel, but not really what you would consider rural. But great place to grow up. Uh, great music and uh, and a great heritage and and beautiful people there. Yeah, interesting place to grow up. Um, like their sports too. The funny thing is, Brett, is that we had a good basketball program. I played football and basketball and, uh, we were terrible in football, three coaches in three years. And now, uh, they've overhauled the program to the point that some of the rivals derisively refer to it as the university of muscle shoals, because I think there are accusations of recruiting, <laughs> whether they're right. founded or unfounded, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, uh, it's, uh, it was a place that loved sports and, and loved music and, you know, a, basically a quintessential, uh, Southern area. And as you mentioned, growing up, you, you were a basketball player, football player. What was Reese Davis like as a little kid, I, I know I was reading, I was reading up uh, on your life, and uh, I know you you had this the sportscaster in in your brain at a young age. You know you wanted to do that, but what was Reese Davis like uh, as a little kid? Oh, I, you know I think I was a pretty normal uh, normal kid, especially in a small town. Um, you know I, I loved sports. Um, you know it was I, I came from a very um, typical family background, I think. I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, my folks and, and I've tried to carry that on probably not as well as they do, but you're very, uh, religious, very devout, you know, very, um, involved in our church in small towns in Alabama, different places where we, where we lived. And that was a big part of our lives. You know, we would, I would go fishing in, in ponds and, and play in the woods and played sports. And, you know, that was, that was kind of it. I, I, I joke a lot. My dad 
could fix anything. He could take a car apart and put it back together. We didn't hire anything done around our house because he knew how to do it. But basically, even as a little kid, I was just a hired labor and I learned nothing because I can do none of those things now. Basically, I was I was all, yeah, here's this wrench, Dad. When when can I go play ball? And you know, that's that's what I always loved the most. So that's that's what I was like. But you know, I was involved in in church and uh, made to mind, you know, pretty disciplined background. So there wasn't a lot of, uh, uh, there aren't a lot of shenanigans, not that I was perfect, but not a lot of shenanigans in my background because I, um, I knew that I was going to get it when I got home, if I got in trouble. Uh, during high school, um, you started, you started kind of dipping your toe and doing some radio work. Now, you, you know, you, you've done a lot of TV. You started off in radio, did, did you like that? It's what are the what are the differences you see? Well, I think the biggest thing is, and I didn't do as much play by play on the radio as you know as some have. But the biggest difference is you have to paint the entire picture and describe everything that's going on and pick out what's important to captivate your listeners so that you are their eyes. When you're doing television, particularly doing a game, they can see it. So you have to then sort of be almost like a beacon that's pointing to the important things that they should be watching or you should amplify what it is that they're seeing. So there are some subtle differences in that regard. But when, you know, I didn't realize all of that when I was first starting and first trying to get my foot in the door and get some experience broadcasting or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. I was just, uh, hey, this is cool. Somebody's letting me talk on the radio every now and then. So um, I didn't understand the nuances in terms of the differences then, but that's something that sort of developed as I as I went forward in my career. And my my experience is much uh, much larger, much more vast in television than in radio. There are, you know, there are um, I th- I think little areas of expertise and different things that I'm probably unaware of in doing radio because I've done it some, but I haven't done it a lot. But the thing that jumps out at me is that if you're on the radio, you have to paint the entire picture and on television, you need to be far more judicious with the use of your words. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I, I mean, I'm doing this now later in life, you know, mm-hmm. after I've played for years and years and you're right, there are differences. Uh, being on the radio, being on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to choose my words. I, I, I can expand a little bit more. Whereas on television, there's sound bites. You got a certain amount of time. You might be working with three or four guys at the desk. I remember the first time I went into uh, MLB network and they put me on the desk. I thought this is going to be easy. They're going to give me a topic. I'm going to break it down. That's, that's right in my wheelhouse. And after my first segment, I came back and, you know, I, I, the, the words I spoke and, and how I delivered it, I thought I did pretty good. And I went back and I watched myself on TV. Now, mind you, Reese, I've done thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of intervie- interviews mm-hmm. where I'm being interviewed. So, uh, you know, I'd sit back in my lounge chair and I was the subject. All of a sudden, I wasn't the subject. I was given a subject and had to paint that, that picture for the audience on, on what I thought. And I thought I, you know, I thought I did good. I watched myself on that replay. And I mean, I'm sitting there, Reese, on the desk. I'm lounged over like this is my show. And I'm going, 
wow, I got a lot to learn because it is different. It is different. I mean, they say, okay, you got to get your posture and you're up here and you're bringing the news, Brett. This isn't all about you, but I'd never been in that arena before. And, mm-hmm. and those are the little nuances I thought were really interesting. Uh, it, you going know, it's into real- my first. You know, Brett, it's really, it's kind of interesting to watch people. And I've, throughout my career, I've worked with so many people who have made that change from being a player or being a coach to coming to the broadcast side. That's sort of a universal feeling. And there is an aspect of it that's true, that there is an easier thing to it. It's certainly, um, it's certainly easier to do than hitting a 95 mile an hour slider or something. You know, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to do than that. But it's not as easy to do well as people think. Rick Majerus, the late coach, who was just a brilliant basketball coach and I, I became very friendly with from working with him. When Rick first got out of coaching, one of the times he got out of coaching and came to work for us, he was working with us during the championship weekend before the NCAA tournament. And I remember he wanted to break down a press offense so he says to our producer he said well you know hey just just let me break this down i can do it i'll draw it up on the board and i'll show it to you and uh and our producer says well that's great how how long do you think it could take he goes (laughs) he said he said normally i could you know normally i'd do it in a clinic like 30 minutes but i'm pretty sure i can do it in seven or eight minutes and our producer's like you can't stand in front of a whiteboard for seven minutes on television and break down a press offense and you have to find a way the art of it is going in depth enough so that so that people are captivated by it they're drawn in to something but not treating it like a coaching clinic that, that's something we talk about on game day every week you want to do x's and o's you want to tell people something to watch for you want to show them uh, what our analysts and what we as hosts know about the sport but it's not a coaching clinic uh, unless you're a coach, nobody shows up for a, a three-hour coaching clinic. So you have to kind of you know find a way to intrigue and in smaller snippets, and that's a difficult thing to do. I think for coaches, particularly players, sometimes have a little bit easier time with it. I found in terms of um, in terms of doing that, coaches want to go through every meticulous detail, and players have a little bit easier time in in. Uh, conveying some of the intricacies without going so far down the rabbit hole that you lose your audience. Right. And, and almost you want coach, wrap it up, wrap it up. Isn't that every player's dream to tell a coach, yeah. I have had enough now. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. right wrap, wrap it up. I've got a little segment. I've got to do my thing. I get it. Um, University of Alabama. That's where you went 85 to 88. Um, okay. You, you're growing up in muscle shoals. In Alabama, was that the only choice for you? It's as a kid, where you go, wow, I'm going to I'm going to Alabama, or did you consider other places? I I pretended I considered other places, but I really didn't. Uh, you know, I dabbled with Northwestern and a couple of other state schools around, and had some opportunities. Uh, there's a, a terrific university right there in the next town beside. Um, Muscle Shoals, uh, the University of North Alabama, which is a great place. And I had a chance to, you know, to go there. Um, You know, it wouldn't have cost anything, but my dream had always been to go to Alabama. When you grow up in that state and you're a fan of the Crimson Tide, uh, that, and I, 
you know, that was something that I always wanted to do. My parents weren't able to go to college. So I was a immediate family, first generation college student. And really that was where I wanted to go. I felt a little guilty about it, honestly, Brett, because I had a, I had a full ride to UNA and felt almost compelled to take that. And my dad, you know, my dad was a machinist. It wasn't like we were wealthy or anything like that. And, you know, my dad said, no, you know, you've, you want to go to Alabama, you know, we'll, we'll find a way to make it work. And then I, I ultimately did get a little help on the academic side uh, with an academic scholarship late at Alabama. And I, you know, worked as an RA and refereed intramural games when I wasn't playing them and, you know, found a way to contribute a little bit. And, and that, that was where I always wanted to go. There was a certain allure and romance, I think, of going to school there for a kid who grew up in the state. And so it was really the, the only choice for me. I pretended I was looking elsewhere, but my heart was always there. Well, I'm a Trojan. I went to USC. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a Pac-10 guy. Well, actually, soon to be a big, a Big Ten guy. I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, tell me about the SEC and and Alabama football. You know, on the West Coast out here, I look at Alabama football. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And and you know, <laughs> SC hasn't been uh, SC for a while now. But just just what's that like? It's part of the culture in a way that's really difficult to describe unless you live it. It's it's more important in some ways probably than it ought to be. But at the same time, that's what makes it so captivating, tantalizing and what makes it a a part of a part of the connectivity from generation to generation within a town and it, it's I mean it's even to the point Brett where especially in the state of Alabama with Alabama and Auburn that if your team loses and the other one wins even if you aren't playing each other people often sort of dread going to work the next week or even to church on Sunday mornings because they know that it's going to be it's going to be a consuming part of conversation and and it, even at a level more so than just good-natured ribbing. You know, some of it will be unspoken. And if your rival's looking at you, you go, I, I know they're sitting there chuckling because my team lost. And it almost becomes you you identify so much with that. And, and it's not just in Alabama. I really think it's across the South, but it's acutely true in Alabama. You identify so much with the team you support. It becomes, you become so heavily invested in it emotionally that it becomes a little bit more of a part of who you are than you see in other areas of the country. It's, it's a step beyond fandom that's really difficult to describe unless you've seen it. And there are people on the outside who might look at it and go, well, there's nothing good about that. I don't agree with that because I do think that there is a certain sense of community that sort of transcends the sports that go that go along with that. It is the front door to the university, and you'll see people in all walks of life that will contribute to uh, the university directly or various causes associated with it because they feel that connection that was that was formed in large part through the connection to the football team. And, you know, it's um, it certainly is part 
of the culture in a way you don't see other places. And I've said several times publicly, and I don't mean to cast aspersions at the West Coast, but I think that is the biggest thing that the Pac-12, soon to be 10, soon to be whatever schools have to overcome. C.J. Stroud, who's playing quarterback at Ohio State, he's from Southern California, you know, said publicly before the Rose Bowl last year, um, you know, I wasn't going to stay here and play half my games or more in front of quiet, half-empty stadiums when I could go to Ohio State and play in front of a 100,000 rabid fans every week, no matter where we went. And I think that's one of the things that the Pac-12 has to figure out. Now, you're not going to change culture and make it as much a part of everything as it is in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. But sort of making it a part of life, a little bit more part of life, a little bit more of a a destination type thing instead of just if they're winning, we'll go see them play. You know, if it, um, you know, it it has to get a little bit advanced beyond that. And I think that's a challenge uh, for those schools. I think they can do it, but it'll take some work and it'll, it has to start with winning and then it has to grow beyond just having a good team. No, I think I think there's so many points there. You said beyond fandom. Uh, I resonate with that. That that is so true. And I think the West Coast in general, um, even at the pro level, it is different than the East Coast. As a ball player, it was different for me to play in Anaheim or San Diego than when I went to Fenway Park, than when I went to uh, Yankee Stadium in a big situation, a big game, Philadelphia, when Philadelphia is winning, it's a different animal than it is on the West coast. I went to USC. I was there in in good times where we went to several Rose bowls. I had Mm -hmm. uh, my years were Rodney Pete won the Rose bowl, Todd Marinovich. I think we won a Rose bowl too. It was great. It was fun. It was SC rolling. Um, But you're right. It's not like going to an Alabama game. I went to one other game during my, uh, during my college years, uh, one other football game, it was the SC Notre Dame. And that's, you know, been a big rivalry for years and years. And they flew the baseball team out for that weekend uh, uh, playing against Notre Dame. And I remember going to that football game when I'm used to going into the Coliseum, you know, SC, uh, mm-hmm. half the student, half the student body's gone at halftime and they're going to fraternity row, but I'm at Notre Dame and we're sitting on those wood benches you know, not the cushy chairs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you're packed in. And that was the first time I went, I felt like I was at a real college football game and it was a completely different animal than going to the Coliseum watching USC, even though at the time USC was a great Mm -hmm. team. And, you know, I think, uh, I think SC is the one school that gets that back pretty quickly when they're good. Now it's Los Angeles and you know LA far better than I do, but they, they want to support winners and they, they want their teams to win. Uh, but they're also boosters and uh, money people at SC who want that too. And obviously they're on the right path there. And I think they'll get the type of atmosphere that is great for college football very quickly. Maybe, maybe even, maybe even over the next few weeks, given the way they've started as, as at least at the time, how you and I, as you and I are talking, but some of the other places I think will find it more difficult. There's such a rich heritage of football at SC and there's such a glamor to it. 
you know, in the modern days when Pete Carroll had it going with Snoop Dogg and Will Ferrell and any other star you might want to mention, you know, being on the sidelines, watching the game, being invested in the Trojans. They have an advantage in that regard because I think there is a little bit a little bit more to the culture of it uh, among SC fans and among people who, even if they didn't go there, consider themselves uh, serious SC fans. But outside of there, it, it's a it's a little more difficult. But there is there is an intensity in places like Notre Dame, uh, Ohio State, even Michigan. Even though Michigan usually fills the stadium and historically has been, you know, a crowd that says, uh, "Entertain me and please cover the spread while you're at it," you know, as opposed to being, you know, rabid. But it's still there's still an intensity in the big house for a big game that you know. You don't find as often on the West Coast, but I do think you find it when SC is really good and SC plays the the big games in the Coliseum. He graduated in 1988, and you took a job in Columbus, Georgia. And this this kind of was interesting to me. I'm, I'm always thinking Reese Davis. He's, he's game day. He's covering sports, ESPN, Sports Center. And you you did some straight news for a while. How was Reese Davis doing straight news? <laughs> Man, it, it, I'm grateful for it now, and I hated every second of it then. I mean, you probably <laughs> you gotta have get the, to. You got <laughs> to get the cat out of the tree. Man, I'm telling you, dude, uh, you you haven't lived until you've gone to a Columbus, Georgia City Council meeting and had them argue with the city manager over you know over some sewage pipe or something, and having to put together <laughs> you know a 90 second story on the news for that the next day, and uh, I mean. It's uh, it wasn't what I got in the business to do, but now that I look back at it, I think it helped you. It helped you learn to tell a story. It it helped you learn to develop sources, get to know people, uh, broaden your interest a little bit. Um, it, it helped me in a multitude of ways. You know, whether it was covering election night or whatever it might be, there there are different things that it was very beneficial for. But that was sort of a necessity, being the mother of invention. I was working mostly news part time at a small station in Tuscaloosa, CBS affiliate there, and I had this opportunity to go to Columbus, Columbus, and work news for three days a week and sports on the weekends. So I took that as a way to to get back into sports. So it was valuable. But I, I didn't see myself ever, you know, becoming the guy who was the White House correspondent or, you know, uh, covering the border crisis or any, anything like that. I always wanted to do sports. But I do think that even learning in those venues and, and dealing with the latest uh, malfeasance accusation against a various city official or, uh, you know, going out to uh, to cover, you know, an assorted crime or something. One of my first stories there in Columbus when I got there was a guy, uh, I don't know if you know Columbus, Georgia very well, but it's my wife's hometown. So I'm grateful to have spent as much time there. I met her there. Um, But there's a huge military base there, Fort Benning uh, for the infantry. You know, it's one of the more famous bases in, uh, in the country. And down at that end of town, there are some, um, you know, there are some some places where things get a little dicey from time to time. And one of my first stories was uh, a guy had gotten murdered outside of a outside of a uh, an establishment uh, there 
So, you know, you immediately go and you're fairly fresh out of college and you've done some news, but not a lot. And you're going to cover, uh, you know, somebody getting killed. I went out and covered a, uh, a murder court martial trial on Fort Benning while I was covering news. And, you know, still think about that a lot, how, how much that shaped you and how you learned the discipline of following the story, making sure that your facts are right. Because, you know, in sports, the one thing you always want to be accurate, but you're not really running into a whole lot of legal trouble. If you, you know, if you misquote a guy's batting average or you get, you know, a yards per game, a little off or something, not that you want to ever do that, but it's not a huge deal. You know, you get something wrong when you're covering a murder trial, that's a big deal. You know, so I think you, I learned a lot from that in terms of attention to detail, um, who you needed to talk to, who could believe, uh, how much skepticism to employ when you're told something, you know, things of that nature. That's really interesting because uh, I think you're right. It can't make you a worse sportscaster by by branching out and doing, like you said, covering a murder trial, covering a student council meeting. Yeah. Uh, And, and, you know, me, I I always like to to put everything back into into the on the field context. So I think especially as a kid, you know, growing up, having that having that diversity, playing football, playing basketball. Taking a ballet class, would I ever want to take a ballet class if it made me a better baseball player? Yes. Not mm-hmm. that I love ballet, but I've done that. So it makes sense uh, in the line of work that, that you've been doing for so long, that branching out and having that uh, in your Rolodex or in the back of your mind. Oh, remember when I had to cover that? Yeah. Well, that mm-hmm. taught me this, and that's why I can do this now. It, it all comes together, and I think it's there, there couldn't really be a negative side to it. No, I, I don't think so either. Um, it's something that, that I'm grateful for and even something I think about from time to time. Not that I would ever want to go back and do it, but, um, you know, I don't want to give the guy any props or any type of publicity. But I, the subject of that court-martial murder trial, I went and looked him up uh, several months ago just to see if he was – still in prison and he is, you know, and, you know, I don't yeah. know why, I don't know why I thought of it. I just did. And so, you know, those things kind of come back. And even if it's not a, a direct lesson for what you're doing today, every now and then you have those experiences and they help shape you and they probably change your perspective on some things in ways you don't even realize in the moment. So it's uh, you know, it, it is, it's not something I think I would have been fulfilled to do long-term Brett, if I had been, uh, cast where I was only doing news. I don't. I don't know for sure that I would still be in the business. Maybe I would. Uh, you know, probably depend on what my platform was and what I got to talk about. But uh, I, I was. I always wanted to do sports. It's. Uh, it's. It's what I grew up loving and what I poured my interest into in terms of in terms of learning. I tried to be well rounded. I like to read. There. I do have some other interests, but my primary one has always been sports. Uh, you moved on to Flint, Michigan in 1993. Uh, ESPN starting to take notice a bit. Uh, recently, I had Carl Ravitch on, um, mm-hmm. long t- long time ESPN, long time Sports Center guy, now doing Sunday Night Baseball, and he told me his story about how he got to ESPN. Really, an interesting one. What is your story? How did you finally get there? Well, the way I got there, I went to Flint and I was there 16 months and I always refer to the man who hired me in Flint, Jim Bliker, who was a news director at WJRT, the ABC affiliate there, is the man who saved my career. Going to Flint saved my career. I went there six, 
six weeks before our wedding, wife leaving hometown to go to Flint, which was best known for the movie Roger and Me at that time, and uh, portrayed the people there, much to their dismay, by the way, of capturing and killing rabbits to eat because times had become so difficult with the auto industry. Turns out it wasn't like that at all when I got there. Tough town, don't misunderstand, but it wasn't like directly like it was portrayed in that movie. But that's the perception. So my wife goes with me and I go there and it's, I mean, phenomenal people, um, made some lifelong friends there. And, you know, you're there and, and you're covering great high school basketball guys. You played in the NBA forever. We were playing high school basketball then. And I've become friendly with uh, Charlie Bell, Morris Peterson, Mateen Cleaves, um, Antonio Smith, who was a great part of the Michigan State National Championship team, and Robert Smith, uh, Antonio's brother, who played in the NFL after playing, um, you know, after playing at Michigan State. Just phenomenal athletics there and a great station great people. And, but I started getting noticed. And my wife said to me at one point, she's like, well, you know, where, where do you want to go? I said, well, I'd like to go to ESPN, but I think I have to get to a bigger market before they'll take notice. And I ran across in an Alabama alumni magazine, uh, a fellow alumnus uh, by the name of Andrea Kirby. And Andrea had a career on the air. She'd been on the air at ABC for a while, but at this stage was had her own business and was a talent coach. And she was doing some talent consulting and coaching for ESPN. So I sent her my tape, used the Alabama connection to make the introduction and so forth. And she called me and she said, why haven't you sent this tape to ESPN? And I said, well, I assume that I have to get to Atlanta or Chicago or you know Boston or someplace before they'll take notice. And she said, you have this screwed up beyond belief. Now, remember the time frame. We're talking, I went to ESPN in 95, so this is probably the fall of 94. And I said, why? Why do I have it screwed up? And she said, if you go to Atlanta, Dallas, LA, someplace, you'll never go to ESPN. And I said, why? She said, you won't take the pay cut. Because at that time, local news and local sports is where the money was being made. And she said, if you want to go to ESPN, send it now. And so I sent the tape and I had an interview in Columbus, Ohio. And the night before I was supposed to go to Columbus, a man called Al Jaffe had left a message on our answering machine at home, you know, pre-cell phone days and all of this. And so I called him back and finally got in touch with him uh, using a pay phone in the parking lot of a Wendy's across the street from the ABC affiliate in Columbus, Ohio. And I told him where I was and I said, I know I have no leverage. I'm not trying to BS you. I said, but I think I've got a pretty good shot of getting this job. And it's, you know, it's Columbus, Ohio, the Buckeyes. It's, you know, it's a pretty good step up. And he said, if you want this job, don't take that one yet. Let us talk to you. So I was able to put him off for a little while and went out to ESPN and, and ended up getting hired, um, getting hired shortly thereafter by ESPN. This is a time where ESPN had expanded, and there was ESPN two. Mm-hmm. What did that mean for for uh, 
guys at that time. Was it was an was it good for the industry? Because all of a sudden you've got other avenues to break in. Whereas if you're just ESPN, there's X amount of jobs, X amount of guys on the on the desk. All of a sudden there's an expansion of ESPN too. Did that help a lot of guys when you're just breaking in? Yes, it, there's no question about it. Now it helped, but me trying to be the compliant guy who followed the rules. It hurt me for a while there because when they hired me, the idea was that I was on ESPN two and I'm not sure they had a really terrific vision for ESPN two. They wanted to be younger, hipper grunge graphics. If you wore a tie, you know, by no means should you wear a jacket. If you wear a jacket, don't wear a tie. If you wear denim, that's better. You know, just, I don't know that they had a clear vision of what they really wanted from it, but they knew they wanted it to be separate from ESPN at that time. So I was told when I was hired, don't come in here asking to do sports center. So a few months after that, we come to the end of the year, it's right around Christmas. And I'm called into the office and you know, I was, I was doing this show. I was doing the sport smash, which was updates at the top and the bottom of the hour. And it was originally within this show called um, sports night, which Stuart Scott and Susie Calber were hosting, but that show had gone away. And so I was just doing the updates around programming. So they call me in right around Christmas and they want an extension on whether they're going to pick up my option on my contract. And I asked, them, are you thinking about firing me? And they said, well, we, you know, and sort of a hemming and hawing thing, you know, you need to talk to this guy and this guy and this guy. And I chased every executive in the building around for like two weeks, you know, through the holidays, great time for this to happen. Right. And finally, uh, our president at the time is now running the NFL network, uh, Howard Katz came back from a vacation and uh, I've met with him and tried to get to the bottom of what was going on. He said, no, look, all I said was that if we're just going to have him do the sports smash, why are we keeping it? And I said to him, I said, Howard, I was asked not to go in and try to persuade someone to let me do sports center. I said, but nobody comes to ESPN wanting to do the sports smash and not wanting to do sports center. (laughs) And he said, do you want to do sports? And I said, well, of course I want to do sports center. And he said, well, I don't mind if they give you a shot at it. So they gave me a shot and um, and it went well. And one of the things that the story that I all, I'll always remember is I I feel like the best sports center anchor, all things considered, uh, writing, uh, knowledge, ability to do things off the cuff on the fly. As, as many great ones as we've had, Keith Olbermann to me is the best that has ever done it. All things considered, whatever you think of anything else that might be going on with Keith, all things considered, uh, I think uh, Sports Center anchor, he's the gold standard. After my first show, I came back up. It was a 2 a.m. show on a Saturday night. You know, I really want to make sure you got some uh, heavy ratings numbers with that one. But I came upstairs. My message light was on. I assumed it was probably my wife or maybe my mom or my sister, whoever. And I checked the message at my cubicle and it's a message from Keith. And I'd had like one passing conversation with Keith in my eight or nine months at ESPN. And he said, I was watching the show. You should be in the rotation with us. I assume that's what you want. I'll make that known on Monday. Oh, it's KO as if I didn't know that. And he hung up. And I to this day don't know what he said, if he said anything at all, or if he was just saying, you know, a boy, kid, nice job. 
Um, but I've, I've always appreciated that. And then shortly thereafter things, you know, they picked up my option. I did more sports centers and then eventually worked into what I really wanted to do, which is, you know, what I'm doing now, uh, college football and college basketball. I love that, that sports center, you know, all of us, we're, we're similar age. Um, mm-hmm. We all kind of grew up with that. And I, you know, the beginning with Berman and Tom Mees and, and mm-hmm. you mentioned Olbermann, Dan Patrick, uh, Charlie Steiner yeah. in, in, in his way. He he's, I used to love watching Charlie Steiner. You know, we had Linda, Linda Cohn on recently yeah. and, and we talked about it. And for me, just as a, as a fan of, of sports center and watching, and believe me, I've watched a million hours of sports center when I was in the minor leagues and checking out, to see what the big guys are doing. But I almost look at you guys and I'm thinking about it. It's almost like SNL. You had the original cast and then, and then it, it slowly changes over time mm-hmm. and there's different generations uh, and everybody has their favorite. But did, did when you come into an atmosphere like that and you have such powerful personalities and there's a lot of and there's so many over the years. Do you feel pressure as the new guy at SportsCenter to, to kind of carve out your niche and say, all right, I've got this personality, you know, that counters Dan Patrick. He has that yeah. personality. Or is it just kind of you just feel your way and, and, you know, it sounds a little bit like Keith was kind of your guy uh, originally that kind of, hey, I like this guy and, and kind of vouched for you and, and maybe was a little part of you getting to that desk. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, there, I, I don't I don't know if he was or not, Brett, but I, I do know this at that time. Uh, I did my first sports center in January of 96. And that was really at the height of the catchphrase era. And whether self-imposed or just trying to distinguish yourself, there was an immense eternal internal pressure by most of us who were new on sports center at that time, whether it was me, Rich Eisen, Stuart Scott, uh, Kenny main, you know, all the people who were breaking in at that time, there was immense pressure to have the next cool catchphrase. And I admittedly pulled a groin a time or two overstretching, trying to do that. And eventually for me, I found out that wasn't really the way to go and you sort of settle into who your personality is. But to your point at that time, absolutely. You were looking for any opportunity to have the wittiest line, the most clever uh, comeback, the the catchphrase on the home run ball that's, that people are going to like. <laughs> and, you know, and we, you know, all of us probably made mistakes on that from time to time. I, I know I certainly did. And you have a few that stick and a few that were funny and, um, you know, some that didn't. And then guys who are really good at that, guys like Stuart, uh, you know, Kenny and his, you know, obscure offbeat way, uh, you know, was really, you know, good at, you know, at finding those things that would resonate with people. But I think ultimately you end up settling into your own personality and doing it your own way. But at that time, you bet, because, And even before, you know, I mentioned Keith in terms of sports center, but the, you know, the godfather of the whole thing, the guy who built the whole campus there is Berman. And, you know, with his his nicknames and, you know, the back, 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 back and the whole, you know, that's a lot of, you know, you've got to find a way to show that you fit into that group. And when you're young and when you're not 
featured in a prominent role, you want to you want to take your shot when you when you get a chance. And sometimes yeah. sometimes you make some mistakes doing that. But it was a great time to do it because I think back on the the talented people that I broke in with and the people who were already there. You know, whether it was Dan and Keith, uh, you know, Carl's a couple of years ahead of me, but uh, you know, Dan and Keith and Chris and Charlie and uh, Bob Lee and Linda. And, you know, there, there is so many people there that were wildly talented and, you know, to do as many shows as I did over the years with, with Stuart too, and to watch his meteoric rise, um, you know, is, is something that was a really cool, really cool thing to be a part of and really cool time to be at ESPN. That's funny. <laughs> you say that time to time you would pull a groin trying to pull out that ultra, <laughs> the ultra witty. Oh, no doubt. Oh, hey, and, and you've been thinking about it all night and it pops up and, it, you know, you're probably in mid-sentence. You go, this is the time. This is the time. And you drop it and then you, and then you think to yourself. How stupid was that? <laughs> no, yeah, I was like, boy, that sounded dumb. How dumb could I be to do that one? You know, it was, I wonder I did, if I, I wonder podcast. if any, I wonder if anybody else noticed. Oh yeah, they did. I did a podcast just a couple of months ago with a, a meteorite, a really good guy from the Ringer, uh, Brian Curtis, and he he was listing some of the stuff I'd said, and I said I thought this was going to be a pleasant conversation. I said, what do we do? Just go dig up and say, let's find every embarrassing thing Reese ever said on Sports Center, and they ask him about it, you know. So we kind of had a laugh about that. But yeah, there's some of them that you look back and you go, oh, geez, what in the world was I thinking? That is great. Uh, 2015, you talk about uh, what you're doing currently. Uh, you succeeded uh, Chris Fowler. I think he was on there for, for 14 years prior to, to you being the host of College Game Day. Uh, that's It's biggest show in town that's a big deal you know the original tim brando um what did that mean to you when you when you got you, you got that call of you're you're the guy it was uh you know there there are always layers to it brett and, and chris chris actually hosted the show for 25 years and you know really um you know really built it i think he he took over right after Tim went on to do other things the first road show was in 93 and fowler was uh was hosting then so, you know, it'd been a long run for him. I think any time that you go into a seat that has been held by one person for a long time, uh, there's, you know, there are people who are going to not like that. The one thing I do think that I had in my favor is that I'd been covering the sport and I'd been in the studio uh, from noon until two in the morning uh, every day for about 16 or 17 years at ESPN. So I was not unfamiliar to college football fans in, in addition to uh, calling games on Thursday nights and then, you know, going in for the weekend. I'd, I'd been a part of our college football team for a long time. So I think that helped me a little bit in terms of the transition. But, um, you know, it was at a time, I mean, you know, from, from your playing days, when, you're, when your contract's up, you're, you're looking around and what, uh, you know, in discussions with my agent, uh, Nick Kahn, at the time we wanted to find wherever it was and whatever it was, the most prominent place in college football that I could have, whether that was um, calling the biggest game, game day, whatever it meant. And so it wasn't as if I set out and said, I want to host college game day someday. I didn't, uh, people, I don't know that people really buy that, but it's the absolute truth. 
Now, having said that, for me and what I at least perceive to be my skill set, what I know that my passions are, I think it's the best job in television, period, and it's certainly the best job for me. Um, so I'm, I'm delighted to have it. It's, uh, it's a great undertaking every week. And the moment, I, it's funny, I don't remember when I knew it was going to happen exactly because it was all part of kind of like a negotiation process of, okay, you guys want to keep Reese. What are we going to do? And so there were talks surrounding that. Um, I don't remember exactly the moment I knew that that was going to be the direction, but I distinctly remember the moment that the news got out when it leaked. I had known it for a while, but I'd kept it very quiet. My family knew and Nick knew, and that was about it. Maybe a couple of other people that were in the college game day loop. But I was in Ann Arbor uh, calling a basketball game, and I was sitting out on the on the court doing a pregame hit for Sports Center, talking about uh, the game that night. And I'd left my phone and my iPad, which I use for notes over at the broadcast table. And it's within eye and earshot while I'm doing this. And I mean, it starts erupting like, zzz, 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 you know, it's buzz after buzz. I'm like, what in the world? And I go back and they're like, you know, in the span of being gone five minutes, they're like 50 messages. And <laughs> I'm like, what happened? I start scrolling through and, and scrolling through them and thought, oh, okay, well, somebody leaked this. It's out now. And so that was, I remember that moment more so than I do you know, whenever, uh, you know, whenever Nick and I talked and, and it had come to fruition, that was the direction everybody was going to go. And, you know, so it was, it was gratifying. It was humbling. What they built, uh, leading up to that is remarkable, you know, and, and Chris was so passionate about helping build that and being a part of the direction of the show. Um, you know, and Kirk and Lee, you know, Lee's been there, Lee predated Chris, you know, and was there with Tim and Abino Cook, you know, those uh, guys who really understood how college football resonated because there were people who were ready in ESPN's administration in 93 prior prior to my arrival there who they weren't really sure they were going to keep college game day on the air. And they convinced them to take the show on the road to the Florida State Notre Dame game, one of the games of the century. Charlie Ward, you know, uh, Irish were undefeated at the time. And the response that they got on site, uh, just a little tiny desk set up somewhere on Notre Dame's campus, sort of convinced they were like, holy cow, we're onto something here. And that's how it got started. And, you know, when you take over something that so much, sweat equity uh, had been poured into it and so much um, emotional equity that that all of the producers and Chris and Lee and Kirk particularly had poured into that. And then, you know, Desmond joined them a little bit later on. It, you know, you feel a responsibility to carry on the, the level of excellence that those those people had set. Yeah. And, and like I said, the people that have run through there, you mentioned, you know, Bino Cook and, and Craig James, Aaron Craig, Andrews yeah. was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a long standing, and now just, you know, they're just the mega fans. It's Saturday morning, baby. It's time to get up and, and watch game. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, what goes in from a crew standpoint, what, what goes into the prep work, the scouting out where you're going to be next week, where you're going to be the following? It's, uh, there are a lot of site surveys done in the off season so that they can pick the, 
the best spot that's conducive to getting a big crowd that's centrally located so that the people going don't have to do a lot of work. You know, you can find the most picturesque setting in the world. And if it's not close to the tailgates or it's not in a traffic area, you know, then you're going to have a hard time drawing people. You know, that said, that scouting work goes on largely in the off season. If we've been to a place over and over again over the years and you kind of know what you're dealing with. When we went to Appalachian State, they weren't on the radar. They had not been scouted. We had no idea or inclination to go there that particular week. We were set to go to College Station, preseason anyway, when you make the plans. And Appalachian State, after crazy game against North Carolina, sort of gotten on the radar in terms of the consciousness of most fans. Then they follow that up by going to Texas A&M and winning sort of making the A&M trip for game day seem flat. And we said, well, let's go to Appalachian State. And so that meant that our director, who does a lot of the site survey, uh, Eric Disher, in his first year on the show, by the way, went immediately to Boone, North Carolina, which is a geographical oddity. It's two hours from everywhere. It's beautiful, but it's hard to get there. And he, he went, scouted out the site, the people at Appalachian State were unbelievably cooperative and helping us. And they were excited the show was coming and sort of rolled out the red carpet. But you have a crew of about all told, not just traveling crew, but whether it's people back in Bristol uh, helping edit tape, put together technical things, uh, truck drivers, guys who construct the stage, stage managers, audio people. You're talking about a team of around 100 people or so. 60 plus, 60 to 70, I'm estimating. I'm pretty sure I'm right in there. We'll travel every week. And so they're, they're in early, scouting it out, figuring out what we need. Because when we put it, when we set up, we have three different stages. And so there are three stages to set up, finding the right locale, getting the security organized, and getting it done, you know, for it to be ready on Fridays. And it's, uh, it's quite an undertaking. And what they pulled off, not having any idea that we were going to boon that week. So there was nothing they could fall back on, you know, as in terms of preparation, you go in July and you scout out various places where you might go, even new places you go, okay, I've at least got some knowledge here to start with. They had nothing to start with uh, when we went to Boone and they, you know, they pulled it off and it was one of the more memorable shows we've had in my eight years on the show. Yeah, for for instance, that that week, when does when does Reese get his email with his plane ticket going? All right, you're going here. You're going here. Yeah, I'm I'm involved in the decision making process. Uh, that doesn't mean I have the final say by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm grateful that the people who do uh, value my judgment on it. So they'll listen. So I knew we were going. So I knew Saturday night we were. That's where we were going. Um, that decision was made. So I usually know Saturday night. Um, you know, we'll start in terms of preparation on the show almost, uh, you know, there'll be a conversation on Sunday, then a massive ideas meeting on Monday, and then countless other conversations and communication um, between me and the producer and uh, the other guys on the set. Like I've, I've already had, you know, several of them in the last two days and we, as we speak here on Tuesday. So it's kind of an ongoing process. And then I'll leave on Thursday. I'll, I'll travel on Thursday and show up. And on 
Friday nights, I'll lock myself in my hotel room generally because I like to prep for the show. But I try to go out on Thursdays and be around some people, get a feel for what the vibe is like in town. We went out to dinner um, in Boone last week and, you know, just people stopping you on the street and thanking you for coming. It's kind of gratifying because there's on the one hand, you just say, hey, you know, we're we're a TV show, but it's extraordinarily gratifying that it's important. Uh, to people and that it means something to them and that it creates a memory for them, particularly the students uh, who I had several students tell me that I never thought that I would come to Appalachian state and we'd have game day. This is, this is one of the greatest things that's happened in my college career here. That's um, you know, it makes you, it makes you proud, but it also humbles you a little bit because you realize that the show's important to people and they, they look at it in some ways and we're grateful for it. They look at it as a validation that we are showing uh, America how much they love their school, how much they love their team, how passionate they are, how important it is to them. And it, it carries a responsibility for us to, to do that justice. Alarm goes off Saturday. Walk me through your day. Saturday mornings, I'll, I'll get up. I like to be there early before everybody else gets there, with the exception of the producers. I mean, everybody else, meaning the whole wild thing that happens. So I usually try to get in around 6.30 Eastern time, two and a half hours before the show. I'm, I'm ready with the exception of anything that might have popped up or last minute button up things. So, you know, I'll, I'll be in the office by around 6.30 Um I'll, I'll look over the tapes again that I've probably already seen. I'll, you know, look over some scripts or go over some things with my researcher. If I have any last minute questions, you know, and, and need, uh, her name's Marissa Downing. She's unbelievable. And she'll, you know, look up stuff for me. I'll usually, now that we've added Pete Thamel, Pete and I will have a couple of conversations about what the latest things uh, he has in terms of news will be, what he wants to do in his hits. Um, and then, and then, you know, I'll try to go out and greet the fans a little bit earlier, then come back in, uh, get my stuff. And I like to be up on set, you know, 20, 25 minutes before the show starts to kind of settle in, uh, maybe interact with the kids a little bit and have some fun, kind of help juice them up. And now that Pat McAfee's joined us, uh, that's a dude who can who can raise the level of intensity in the crowd. He's amazing. Um, so I try to go out there and kind of get the whole feel of it so it's not just a situation where you're showing up and doing a show. So, um, you know, all of that sort of like final prep, going back over things, talking uh, to the producer, Jim Gallero, about, okay, in this segment, we've decided we're doing it this way. But you always want to leave room for spontaneity. But uh, the best the best spontaneity comes if it is a reaction to what you have planned, if that makes any sense. You know, you don't want to go out there and say, hey, what are we going to do next? You know, but you also want to be nimble enough that if, you know, if there's something goofy happening in the crowd or somebody has a great sign or somebody on the set says something unexpectedly, you want to be able to pivot and move off of it and, you know, not feel like that you're uh, locked into the plan. Because we, we don't have script. We don't use teleprompter. Uh, we have a rundown, which is uh, an organizational tool, for lack of a better way to describe it, that shows what we are going to talk about next. And there has to be some preparation or else, you know, you can't just randomly uh, roll tapes. So, you know, we've prepared all of these things and we know what's coming in terms of the tapes, but the conversation is not, is not scripted at all. We might have, we might have discussed over, you know, overarching themes that we would, 
talk about relating to a certain game, but it's never a, hey, Desmond, you say this, and then Kirk will say that, and then Pat will chime in here. It's never, it's never like that. And you're kind of the, you're kind of the point guard. You're the, you're the, you're the quarterback on that, on that set. You ever have any last minute before you go on <clears throat> debating? I mean, you're, like you said, you're, you're pretty prepared for this. You started mm-hmm. this, you, you did your, you do your prep early in the work. You're on a plane on Thursday. You're in your hotel room Friday. I would assume you're about as ready as you can be, but you ever get on that set? You know, like you said, you get there 20 minutes early, 10 minutes to go. Any changes ever? Or is it just, no, we got what we're going to. Whatever comes naturally comes naturally, but we pretty much know where we're going with these segments. Yeah, you, you usually do, but things happen. Uh, the most notable example of that is that we found out, I'm pretty sure we were, we where were we? The week? It doesn't really matter where we were, but we were on site, and the night before, uh, late the night before, when J.T. Barrett was a quarterback at Ohio State, he, he got in trouble, had, you know, a, a DUI or whatever. He, you know, it wasn't anything. I mean, all DUIs are serious. I don't mean that. But the accident itself or the moment itself, you know, no one was hurt, no no real property damage, anything like that. But it was a story. It's a big deal. And it, it popped up. Literally, we were able to confirm it minutes before we went on the air. And. So many people, when they watch television, you know, they like to think that the people sitting out there are just saying what the producers tell them to say. And it's just not true. It just doesn't happen that way. But in this particular case, because we were getting details and details that were reportable that we could confirm, that was literally happening while I was on the air. So we had to change everything on the fly. That was obviously the lead story of the morning. And I was being fed the information that as we were confirming it and I had to completely trust our news editor and our producer who was giving it to me to be able to relay that information about what had happened, what we, what we could confirm, what Ohio state's response to it was and all of that. And I always feel bad telling that story because it does show the TV uh, aspect of it, but JT such a good dude. And, you know, he had an error in judgment, you know, and, you know, I always feel like I'm throwing him out under the bus when I tell the story, but it, it is the example of us being willing to change. And the best producers have a, have a good feel for you. You know, they'll, they'll work along with you. They'll either tell you, Hey, look, this, this is dragging. Let's move on from this. Or I can get on talk back and say, I'm not feeling this one. Let's, let's move on here. You know, maybe a little sooner than we anticipated. So in that aspect, we do stick to the plan, but the plan is always subject to what feels right in the moment on TV. Got to get to the signs. Got to get to the sign. How do we get to the side? And are you constantly giving advice to kids on, all right, here's what I would do if I were you. <laughs> on the sign? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I always tell them I like the, uh, maybe it's my sense of humor or something. I like the the non sequiturs, the ones that don't really mean anything, but they're kind of funny. I'm, I'm a sucker for SpongeBob signs. Uh, the one that I remember when we were in Times Square for no reason whatsoever. Uh, there was a guy in the front row who had made a sign that said, Fordham beat Missouri in the 1942 Sugar Bowl. Never forget. And I found that hilarious for some reason. So, you know, the clever ones like that I like. And I always tell them generally, tiptoe all the way up to the line, just as close as you can get to the line without stepping over. So if you do that, you know, 
kind of give you one of those, if you know, you know, kind of moments with the signs. Uh, human interest stories, <clears throat> excuse me, are a big part of game day. Uh, I always find those, you know, because some of them are real emotional. And then all of a sudden, bam, you got to pivot and go back to to game day stuff. Mm-hmm. Pumping up the crowd. McAfee getting up there. Um, you like that part of the program? It's it's an integral part of the program. This this um, this show covers all aspects of college football, the landscape of college football. And that includes the humans who play it. And to be able to tell stories that are meaningful, that perhaps can help someone or if nothing else, just gives you an empathy uh, for the players is, is huge. I mean, Jim Mojahowski last week did a story on Michigan's tight end, Eric all who had been saved from a house fire as a baby um, and had a reunion with the firefighter who saved him. He'd never met him before. It just, and, and the firefighter didn't even realize for a long period of time that the baby he had saved out of a crib who was near death. And in fact, when they saved him, they thought the baby was dead the baby being Eric had gone on to become a star tight end at Michigan and team captain and all those things. And Gene captured that story and was able to facilitate the reunion and the meeting between those two. He Gene did that, um, you know, with the cooperation, obviously of the all family and, and with the firefighter and you know the firefighting emt and it was uh it was a poignant thing it lets you it, it it's part of game day to let you know that these guys aren't just x's and o's they aren't just guys under helmets they're people and they've had the same types of trials and tribulations that all of us have had at some point in our lives so it, it's a it's a huge huge part of the of the show every week it's you know, my wife told me uh, that she saw a comment during one of the human interest stories about, I just want football. And I'm sure there's a certain segment of the audience that feels that way. But, you know, go see a coaching clinic, you know, go download some coach videos off YouTube or something during the during the features if you don't like them. I, I think the overwhelming majority of the people who watch our show have a deep appreciation for what Gene and uh, Jen Latta and and during and for many years, what Tom Rinaldi, who's now with Fox, uh, did in that space, and it's it's a pretty remarkable thing that they've been able to tell all of these stories about um, the players and coaches over the years. How did the bear get to be so big? <laughs> and I want I, I want a, I want a good guest picker story. Okay, all right, uh, I could give you a few of those. First of all, prior to my arrival on the show, getting a guest picker is not as easy as everybody thinks. Everybody thinks we just pick somebody and they come. Well, these you know they're big stars, they're busy people. Rare is the occasion that a Luke Combs will do what he did last week. He had a show in Wisconsin on Friday night one scheduled for Saturday and flew to Appalachian state to be the guest picker in between. And then immediately went back and went back to Wisconsin and did a show. Most of the time in a situation like that, the person would say, I'd love to do it. Thank you for the invitation. Can't do it. We've even had people cancel on Fridays and we've had to scramble to find somebody. So it's not easy to find them. The reason I set the story up this way about the bear is because this is how that happened. Apparently prior to my time on the show, they couldn't find a guest picker at USC. And I think it was USC Cal game, maybe even one of the Aaron Rodgers games. 
And someone said, well, why don't we just roll the bear out there? He knows, uh, he knows all of this stuff at the time. He was a researcher on the show and they rolled him out to be the guest picker and it caught on. And, you know, he got the nickname from Corso who said, uh, apparently one day he said, all, all you do is eat and, and take a, take a poop and go back to sleep or something like that. You know, back in the day, he was just teasing him. He said, you're like a big old bear. And that became the nickname. He resonates with people because he's every man. And he, he loves to play games of chance, you know, in terms of wagering. So he's just become a bigger and bigger star. And it's one of the, it's one of the coolest things, the, uh, the thing that he's built for himself, whether it be his role on game day, the podcast that he has with uh, Stanford Steve, who's done some similar things in his career with Scott Van Pelt. And, you know, just the all of the other aspects, whether it's appearances, gambling advice, uh, all the different things that Chris Felica, the bear, has built is really phenomenal. And it's great for our show because he 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 can be a punching bag. He's usually good natured about it, but Herb Street particularly likes it if he gets kind of mad. Uh, you know, <laughs> we start teasing him. So Herb Street, Herb Street's been known to take a stick and poke the bear and see if he can get him riled up. Uh, but you know, he's he's a such an important part of the show because he has such a breadth and depth of knowledge of college football, both from a gambling and statistical standpoint and from an historical standpoint. He can, you know, he can help shape a lot of things over the course of the week. And he's really involved in the, in the structuring of the show as well. So he's more than just a, than just a character on the show. He's really a big part of the planning and the implementation of various devices. So, you know, he's, his background and his rise to prominence was rooted in being a guest picker when we didn't have anyone else. But I mean, there are so many guest picker stories, whether, you know, whether it's McConaughey rolling up in the Lincoln in 2019 before the Texas game against Joe Burrow and LSU, um, you know, ripping the mascot head off of Corso's head and scratching his nose, which is, you know, which LC always says, hey, scratch my nose. Um, great. The, the one mo- recently that, that resonates is Ken Jeong joined us at Michigan State. And I'm almost hesitant to quote him without saying it at the beginning, but he, he was saying that he was picking UCLA because his wife got, um, got her uh, doctorate and became a, a doctor, I believe, medical doctor from UCLA. So he was saying, you know, I'm picking UCLA because of my wife. And then he said, you complete me. And then he said his wife's last name, which is, H-O. Well, we didn't know this. And he said this when he was talking to his wife. And uh, so, you know, the set immediately goes, oh, what have you said? And, you know, be, having the perfect comedic timing, he goes, um, he, he looked at me and he goes, oh, come on, ESPN, settle down. That's her name. And he, and he said, and it is, in fact, her name. And, you know, just moments like that with, with these guys who are, you know, who are hilarious uh, resonates. And then there are guys who just kind of don't get it, you know, at all. And that's also can be funny. Uh, another quick, um, another quick guest picker story. We had John Goodman at LSU one year and huge star, you know, big part of my favorite movie of all time. Oh, brother, where art thou? 
played Big Dan Teague in that. It's been on Broadway, you know, obviously Roseanne, all kinds of things, you name it. Uh, Babe Ruth, you know, he's done everything. And he was in this movie called Everybody's All-American with Dennis Quaid, which was set around uh, an LSU football star. So he comes back and he's wearing his LSU jacket and he lives in New Orleans now, I believe, and he's become an LSU fan. And he walks out and in the break and he looks at me and he goes, you know, I'm really nervous. I'm like, what? I'm like, all your stage and movie experience? I said, you're, you're Big Dan Teague from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? You're, you're Dan Connor from Rose. How are you nervous? But people come into that, that setting and sometimes they're, they're nervous about it. And you wouldn't expect them to be. Now, he was fantastic when the lights went on. But to find out that those people who you think were just rolling, yeah, I'll do this. This is no problem. Sometimes they get a little nervous. And that's, uh, that, that's always surprising to me when they are. Yeah, it's just different out of his element. You know, he's yeah, not used to right. that. For, for you, it's another day at work. For him, it's <clears throat> now we put you on a movie set. And we, you know, you've got oh, to yeah. play opposite somebody. Maybe <laughs> you're like, wait a minute. I love when they try to, <clears throat> excuse me, people ask me, you know, a golf tournament. You know, we go out, we play a celebrity event. And you have a little bit of a gallery, you know, 20, 30, 40 people. Oh, this isn't a big deal, Brett. You played in front of 50,000. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, I'm a professional at that. I stink at golf. And I'm going to hit that guy right there that pretends like <laughs> like I'm a tour player. At any time, he could be dead. It's a different animal. And it doesn't matter how many people you've been in front of at what you do. You know, what 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 you pay the bills with, it's it's the other things. But I think also all these things we're mentioning from <clears throat> from the bear to the signs to the human interest stories to, you know, the game day, breaking the game down. I think that's why it has so many different elements. There's something there in that production for everybody. I mean, you guys, are, you're like a rock star. You're just going venue to bet. Where are we going next week? I think it's it's a really cool thing. Some of your favorite venues, and and you love going back to Alabama. I, I do. I mean, I think any time that you go back to a place that carries special meaning for your your alma mater, it's it's a, a cool thing. Um, I always say, I think because of their crusade to get the show, fifteen years they had that flag there every week. My favorite venue of all time is Washington State. I'm not sure that we're ever going to top that because it was uh, it was like the realization of a crusade for those fans who had. Uh, gone through all types of logistical nightmares to make sure that that flag wound up at the set every week with the identified goal of bringing game day to Pullman. And we finally went there in 2018, but there Cincinnati uh, UCF Boone uh, at Appalachian state last week is going to be right up there on the list. Um, Philadelphia, we were at Independence Hall once, Times Square show. I think the off-the-beaten-path off shows are the ones that are most memorable. Because James Madison, uh, when you go places like that, as I was saying earlier about App State, a lot of the fans and the students didn't expect you to come during their time there. And because of that, there, there's a real intensity to the excitement about it. And that gives you a jolt of adrenaline doing the show. You always want to do the best show you can. And, and I'd like to think that I bring the same energy, whether we have uh, five people or 5,000 or 25,000 out there. But when there's a big crowd and you feel that vibe in the days leading up to the show that they're excited to have the show, 
uh, it's it's a really cool thing. So those are probably my favorites. Pullman at the top of the list uh, with uh, James Madison, Appalachian State, UCF, Cincinnati, kind of in no particular order right there behind uh, being some of my most memorable and favorite uh, venues. Final game is Army-Navy. Uh, it's kind of America's game now. Is that uh, pretty fitting how to end the college season? We've loved going to that every week. And, and there at the crowd, we always kind of orchestrate a scene set at the beginning, trying to get the crowd to participate. And there, those, those dudes can follow orders. You ask them, you know, stand at attention until you hear me say this, and then you can go wild. And they do it to precision. And you meet so many uh, cool people. Uh, involved with both schools. I've become really friendly uh, with both coaches at both academies who are just tremendous people and coaches and, and the young men and women that are in the, uh, the core of the brigade. Um, it's, it's a, it's a morning of pageantry and, you know, of pageantry and tradition and really sort of the essence and the roots of college football that that we you know try really hard to celebrate and capture and it's been it's been something that's been phenomenal for the show and hopefully for that rivalry when that game ends uh you do have the best job in the world because all the set it's like when we're kids and you're playing football you know when you're just end of the football season maybe your 500 team you just want it to be over because it's time to go play hoops and that's fresh you're that guy now. Football season ends. You say you, you say goodbye to your panel. You say goodbye to Herb Street and, and Corso and Howard, and you move on to to Greenberg, Billis, and Ellis. Um, yeah. I, I, that's that's pretty awesome, though. It's like, all right, that was a great season. Way to go, guys! Really cool. I got to go do the hoops now. <laughs> I, but it, but it's cool. It's fresh. It's new. It's like, all right, that, that's enough football. That and, and by the time next year football, you, you're chomping at the bit to get after it. Um, it's the same. It's, I guess, same format, but different. What are, what are the what are the differences in that the football versus the basketball? I always feel like the only thing those two shows have in common, other than great people to work with, they share a name. There's no game ever in the regular season in college basketball that is as important as any game in college football. Some of that is the nature of the sport. You play multiple times a week. Some of it is the nature of the postseason and qualifying for it. Much easier to do in basketball. Um, there are a number of factors to it. So it's a more issue-oriented show um, than than the football show. The football show certainly tackles issues, but there there's a buildup all week to a set of games, and you get one shot at these games. In basketball, uh, there might be a big Duke North Carolina game, but they may, they're definitely going to play one more time. And this year they played an additional time and almost played another time in the ACC tournament. So, you know, there always is the feeling like, um, like this is not a be all end all make or break situation. And therefore, um, the basketball show is a little more issue driven. It's a little more a trend driven and end of the season making the tournament driven. And I've got, you know, I've got phenomenal guys on that who love the sport. Um, I've got, you know, Billis, who is is the best broadcaster in the business. Um, you know, there's just nobody better than he. You know, he to have he and Kirk as as my two lead analysts is, you know, phenomenal. They're the two best guys in the industry. 
And, you know, I think in terms of the basketball show, it's something I've been with since the very first show. And we, Jay and I started that in 2005 at the time with Digger Phelps. And it's, it's something that's important to me. I love doing the show. And I think just sort of the nature of, of basketball coaches and players, they're a little looser and a little more, uh, a little more fun loving as on the whole uh, than football guys. And so it gives the show, I think, a little bit of a different character. And you're right. It gives you something uh, a little bit different to do a little bit of a different vibe and feel to the show. It's like you have two two different professional families. You got three families and two of them are professionals. But do you ever uh, do you hear ever hear from your football analysts during basketball or vice versa? Oh, absolutely. Especially the the basketball Billis and Greenberg during football. You know, Billis will always even though he he likes football and, and participates in pools and tries to uh outpick his uh his country club buddies and stuff but you know he'll he'll send a thing of when are you going to be done with this sadistic ground acquisition sport and come back to the beautiful sport you know and uh all of that kind of stuff and um you know i'll hear from uh i'll hear from the football guys a lot especially pollock pollock loves basketball he particularly loves the nba but he loves college basketball too so he's i hear from him a lot during basketball season those guys watch each other and 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 enjoy the other shows as well Doing the college shows, and and uh, for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, um, Reese and myself, we had we have sons that went to school together at Princeton. Uh, his son is Chris, a bas- uh, baseball player. My son, baseball player. Um, when you're when you're doing these, because everything you do is is on these game days. It's all college, not professional. So when you how do I, I'm trying to think of a way, uh, what I'm trying to get out is, do you consider that, you know what it's like to have a college athlete as a son. Mm-hmm. When you're reporting on these college events, whether it's basketball or football, do you take that into consideration and do you approach it differently than you would the professional ranks? Yes. Now, it's probably changing a little bit right now, Brett, in the football and basketball space, particularly because of the NIL and and the professionalism of it. I think it's making, um, you know, it's making people less hesitant to, uh, to critique. Right. But, but the experience that I've had with my son and knowing what all that's gone into it. And I've never been, I've, I think I've always been a measured guy and, and had a pretty good grasp on how difficult it is to play at a high level. And that sometimes things go wrong and I don't say, you know, that guy stinks, he's terrible, whatever. I've, I've never been that guy. I've never done that. But I do think it has deepened my appreciation for for what goes into it. You always knew it on an intellectual level, but to experience it through your son's a different thing. Now, you have a, a, an even different level of appreciation because you did it. Then you're watching your son go through it. Um, you know, it, it, it does it does change because the one thing that I remind myself of now, look, you have to critique. That's the job, you know, and and sometimes if someone either does something off the field that's dumb or makes a play that's not the best there, you can't pretend it didn't happen. So, you know, that's not serving your viewers. But I always think that kid has a mom or dad out there who's listening to every word here. That kid is going to hear about what I say. 
So is it fair? Is it true? And is it taking the entire scope of what happened into consideration? So I think, um, yeah, uh, the short answer to it is, is for sure, because um, people think it's easy. And they think that, you know, those guys just roll out there and, and play and they've been given, uh, you know, a lot of gifts um, by the Lord and they have, but they work their tails off or they're not there. And everybody there, even the, the third string quarterback is good. He's really freaking good or he wouldn't be there. And, you know, so I try to take that in consideration and make sure it's balanced as I said, you can't shy away from critique or criticism because that's the job. But at the same time, it has it has um, impacted the way I evaluate and making sure that I'm considering the entire picture uh, when you when you have to criticize someone. And uh, I know you got to get out of here soon. I'll give you a couple more and and let you go. Nil the the name image likeness good or a bad thing for the game? Good. Uh, it's, it's the only, it's right. Every other person in every other walk of life has the ability to capitalize on their popularity or a unique skill set that they, they might possess. Why in the world we would say athletes can't when in many cases they will never be more popular or more marketable than they are in their four years at school countless guys that i mean i know johnny menzel did okay uh in terms of being a first round draft pick even with a short-lived nfl career there's no way he was more popular during the professional time than he was in those years at texas a&m and there are myriad guys that you could bring up like that so i think i think it makes it a more honest endeavor i think the next step will be revenue sharing with the television contract how that's implemented, whether it's through conferences or individual schools, I don't know. But that's going to happen. It needs to happen. And I think, I think NIL is, uh, is long overdue, and it's a good thing for the players. Last thing, I want to talk about the coach, Lee Corso. Uh, man, been around forever. Entertain Back in the day, doing a show in Indiana. Uh, the mascot, headgear, all classics now. Um, Talk a little bit about Lee. What have you learned from him? (laughs) What he says to us regularly, it's entertainment, sweetheart. Football's our vehicle. He has an innate understanding that you have to entertain. It doesn't mean that you don't inform. It doesn't mean you don't, you know, talk ball. But the entertainment has to lead the way to draw people in and get them to watch. I think I've, I've, really had that emphasized from my years working with Lee. And I think the one thing you learn from him is just um, passion for a craft, passion for a sport and for a show. He has all of those things and he's become an institution. It doesn't feel right to have a kickoff anywhere until LC has put on a mascot head of somebody that it's like the signal that it's okay to play football now. And, that's, I mean, that's a really cool thing that I never take for granted. And his ability to, uh, even at his age of 87, to be able to connect with the crowds and students when we go uh, various places is something that's, that's a really important part and something that will be enduring in the history of the sport. And not many broadcasters, uh, not many broadcasters would be able to say they made that type of impact on their sport. 
Reese Davis, it's been a pleasure. I, I appreciate coming on. This was a lot of fun. One of the best to do it. All the best going forward. I'll be watching. Give Chris my best. And uh, once again, it's it's been uh, a lot of fun, and I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. And what we do each and every Boone Podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. That voice is Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast. EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera, digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast. Neighbors and friends and all those that love sports, make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.